Hello and welcome to another podcast from La Civiltà Cattolica English Edition. My guest today is Father Michael Rosier, whose area of expertise is, is public health management. And we want to talk to him about what can be done in the midst of the pandemic that's here at the moment. What can be done that will address the problems and what can be done to make sure that basic things are covered and that we are careful with each other about what to do. Welcome to this platform for La Civiltà Cattolica, Michael. Thank you, Father Kelly. Great to be with you and, and to discuss this topic. All right, let's let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in this particular subject? You know, my interest in public health actually began as a Jesuit novice. Um, I was sent on an experiment uh, to the country of Belize, where I was working in the federal prison in Belize and was assigned to work with HIV positive um, prisoners. Um, and there were a lot of social barriers to getting them to you know, take food supplements, to take the antiretrovirals, to, to do this. And so I literally started Googling uh, how to you know, negotiate some of, some of these barriers to, to health. And this field of public health that I had never heard of came up. Um, and I actually, uh, following the novitiate, asked the society if I could continue in the, in the field of public health. And um, I, was, I was fortunate that I had some um, very gracious superiors along the way who allowed me to study and work in this field. Uh, I think little did we know uh, that it would become uh, so unfortunately relevant globally uh, at this point in time. Well, it's certainly that now and uh, isn't showing any sign of relenting anything like the near time future. We've got into this this situation with COVID. Do you think it was avoidable? No, I, I, I think we are always going to see what are known as zoonotic diseases, diseases that jump from animals to the human community. Uh, th there's no way to avoid that reality. And so we're going to see these novel diseases appear. What is avoidable is the, the scale uh, of, the, um, of the pandemic that that we have seen with, with COVID-19. Um, so if we had stronger institutions, if we had uh, greater social cooperation, if we didn't have the underlying social conditions uh, that we unfortunately have globally, um, then it, it would not have been uh, the situation that, that we are facing right now. And so in, in some ways, no, it's absolutely not avoidable. And in other ways, the, the scale and scope of it uh, certainly is and can be better managed. Absolutely. What, just give us, give us an idea of the sort of things you think that should be introduced to manage the scale. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there are some um, very technical things that can be done specific to novel diseases that, that emerge. We have things called like sentinel stations uh, globally that help us detect when these diseases emerge and help us to investigate them very quickly. Now, those rely on significant technical expertise and they rely on cooperation across states and with international agencies. And when, when trust is diminished across countries and across the globe, then it makes these kind of investigations early on in the pandemic much more challenging, which is one of the things that we saw with, with COVID-19. And so there are, some, there are some technical aspects of it. There are some geopolitical aspects. 
But then the other big management piece of it really has very little to do with health per se. Uh, and it has more to do with the social conditions. It has to do with the environmental realities that, that bring us into a greater, con closer contact with animals uh, by deforestation and, and ruining habitats. It has to do with you know, economic realities of, of people not having the kind of jobs that allow them um, to, uh, to take time off of work or to distance, not having the housing that allows them to find uh, separation from people who are sick. There, there are just a lot of other conditions that we don't think of as health necessarily, but are absolutely crucial to managing a pandemic like this when it emerges. I live in a country at the moment called Australia, and in Australia, right across the country in various jurisdictions, we've gone into three, four, sometimes five periods of lockdown and um, people aren't allowed on the street, people aren't only allowed to do the most obvious and basic things like, uh, uh, you know, shopping and doctors and stuff like that and getting medication. And that produces an enormous amount of frustration, an enormous amount of isolation and disengagement, which is antisocial. And, uh, you know, under certain circumstances, I mean, I'm not a naturally depressive person, but I am an extrovert, which is most unusual because uh, normally extroverts don't go anywhere near priesthood or religious life. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the problem with living in the Jesuits is that really, by and large, living with a bunch of introverts, when you are extrovert, you just get very frustrated. You get very frustrated as time unfolds and uh, there's nothing coming back and there's, there's nothing operating that way. I have an extra problem at the moment in that uh, 12 months ago, I had my left leg amputated at the knee, which um, came as a result of an aneurysm, but it, uh, it slows me down. It slows my movement down. And they're the things you have to manage. And I think we're all across the world into managing tedium, boredom, frustration, disengagement, and various levels of unhappiness, various levels yeah. of unhappiness. What are you seeing around the world in the way of people doing something to to address that? Yeah, well, so I, I think it's important to first recognize that um, the the challenge of social isolation and the rise of mental health conditions like anxiety and depression were uh, with us well before COVID. And over the past you know decade or so, we have seen a significant surge um, in these what are often referred to as diseases of despair. Mm. Um, which, which we can you know, talk, talk about um, in addition, if you'd like. But you're right that COVID has exacerbated this because of one of the key measures uh, are that the key strategies for limiting um, this kind of communicable disease, especially a respiratory disease, where um, it doesn't doesn't necessarily require close physical contact in the way that other communicable diseases would require it. Um, that one of the key strategies is social distancing or physical distancing. And so um, a, a couple of the key elements of this, the, the countries that I think have, have done it really well are the ones that have uh, acted very quickly. So if, if you could head of it, and, and, and in public health, it's often a matter of doing something before you actually think you need to do it. And if you can do it before you actually think you need to do it, then it tends to last a shorter period of time. If you wait too long to implement these kind of measures, then it becomes so protracted because you're trying to make up so much ground. And with these kind of diseases, there's an exponential growth that it takes quite a bit of time to, to roll back. And so 
It's the ones who acted almost too soon in the public opinion, but also the ones who clearly communicated why it was necessary and what the end point was. One of the challenges that we have seen with countries uh, instituting some of these rather severe measures is not giving people a sense of hope or you know what's on the other side of this. Um, you know, if, if we can act collectively to achieve a certain outcome, what is that going to allow us to do and win? And that way, people can kind of not only take the action that's necessary, but kind of collectively hope toward and act toward the outcome that is going to allow them to get back together. It's it's the it's the unknown that I think a lot of people have found frustrating. And then the other big piece of it is clearly communicating uh, why it is it is necessary and having it evidence-based. So I think I think um, some governments have really struggled and have have gone in one direction, you know, one for political reasons, not willing to anger the population and failing to do these kind of lockdown measures uh, entirely. That's often happened in the United States where we have had governments, I think, who feared the people and were unwilling to do it. But then I think the, the other piece of it uh, you can go on the other extreme and uh, actually not have an evidence-based rationale for doing a lockdown and it kind of being your, your only go-to strategy to try to mitigate the solution. And it's, I, I think it's incumbent upon governments and other agencies to make sure that they are not doing too severe of a lockdown, not doing it for too long, and making sure that they're thinking creatively about how do we continue to engage especially the most isolated individuals in our community to make sure that the um, kind of mental health concerns uh, aren't further exacerbated i'm rather pleased to admit that i'm nuts anyway so uh, <laughs> the, the, the problems with uh, with mental health won't won't be uh, uh won't come as a big surprise you know that's that's a joke but uh it's about being fully alive to and aware of the ways in which our isolation can trigger insecurities that in turn translate into dysfunctions. And uh, that's that's the real problem that we all have to face at the moment uh, of how to manage all that. Now, the answer to it all is, of course, interaction and community, but we can't do that because in the very process of enhancing interaction and community engagement, we um, provide opportunities for the disease to be communicated, and uh, so we can't we can't do that. Um, I'd like to move to to something else, which is um, how do you see the medicine interacting across the world, interacting with the sort of socio political cultures that these things have to be resolved in. Uh, I mean, obviously, in command and control communities that are centrally organized the most vivid and powerful instance of which is obviously the people's republic of china um where they've had centuries of being told what to do and doing it or getting their getting their fingers cut off um through to other places that are just you know completely and utterly aberrant and uh incoherent um and have never never been able to do it i mean you know the outstanding and comical instance is, you know, is is getting the Italians to uh, to agree on something and have them all do it together. That uh, it's just never been done, and they're not going to do it. You know, my own country is you know is a secular pluralist democracy, and you know that they'll basically be persuaded by evidence. And if people play up 
the coppers will come in and they'll belt you over the head and probably put you in jail for a while till you wake up to yourself. But they're not notably disobedient. But there are plenty of cultures will only work on persuasion, not on direction. What do you think are the most helpful things that can be done to get societies cohering about a response to this? Well, I, I think um, you have largely answered it in, in the question itself because the answer is completely dependent upon the social context and the kind of the political context in which people are operating. And so if, if, if a country is going to operate by persuasion, um, the United States would, I think, be one of those that it's incumbent upon our, our political and civil leaders uh, to be persuasive. Now, what's, what's, um, what we are finding is that different language, different frameworks is ne are necessary for different, different subgroups within the population. And so one thing that you know, we as a public health community have known for a long time, but this is a, a great case study for, is how do you have segmented communication strategies? You know, for one group, it might be a pro-life communication strategy. For, for another group, it might be, you know, um, an, an economic freedom strategy. For another one, it, it might be solidarity and community. Um, but, you know, to, to presume that within, you know, especially within largely pluralistic societies, as, as, as many large countries are, are, are currently, it, it is a mistake to presume that there's going to be one strategy that's going to be effective across the board. And, and that is what kind of, I would point to largely um, that the places that have done that well have succeeded and the places that have failed to recognize that uh, are going to continue to repeat this cycle of failure uh, to really um, to make some headway against the virus. I have a friend here in Australia who did his, um, did his doctorate in infectious diseases. Uh, he's a medico and he's now a senior supervisor of a, of a hospital in Canberra, Calvary Hospital in Canberra. And he wrote a book some years ago, which, which was a sort of layman's uh, approach to infectious diseases. Hmm. And of course, as an infectious diseases specialist, he uh, had been telling me for years, it's only a matter of time till the whole thing blows up again. And, you know, it's all, it, it, we're all going to be diseased mincemeat. Um, that was, was his, his quiet view. And then, of course, what he tried to, to tell me about the whole thing was that there's not a lot we can do about this and it's going to pop out at any time. Of course, I'd had no direct experience of it and I didn't expect that it was going to um, happen that quickly and that easily. But it did. It, in this instance, it just did. And mm -hmm. um, it became overwhelming and overpowering and, uh, and, and that was that. And, and the science was there, but there was no way that the science could actually um, anticipate the um, timing or the scale of what was there. This, my friend had done his postgraduate research at an infectious diseases hospital in Melbourne, which was a, you know, of national significance, which then the government in its own genius decided to close down because there wasn't any need for an infectious disease because we don't have infections anymore. Thanks for coming, you know. That's right. Great, great advice. But that was the sort of consensus that was around about 20 years ago, that the age of, you know, plagues and transmissible diseases that get out of control was over. You know, we can control syphilis. We can control, you know, we can even control the, the permutations of, uh, of pneumonia. 
But mm-hmm. of course, along comes something of this scale and of this significance, and it's just beyond our reach. It's beyond our management and beyond our control. Now, do you think we're just lurching into a time when that will be the norm? You know, I, I think there are a couple kind of large global factors that make it more likely that this is going to be a more regular occurrence. Uh, and I realize that's a very depressing thing to say, uh, but I, I, I think there are, I, I, I've already mentioned um, the kind of environmental realities where we are creating more contact between human uh, humans and the habitats in which animals dwell, make it more likely that these viruses are going to be jumping between the animal community and the human community more regularly. Globalization and the frequency of travel uh, across the globe obviously makes this incredibly, like, you know, the, the Spanish flu of the early 20th century uh, had a much higher mortality rate than this. But the, the, the spread and the, the rapidity of, of this particular one because of international air travel, and that, that's not going away. So that, that's another kind of big global reality that makes us more likely. And also um, the warming of the environment, uh, absolutely, the warming of the climate um, is, is going to make these things um, more likely as well because of, the, uh, of just the way that creates uh, easier incubation for a lot of these diseases. So, yeah, I, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think this is something that we are going to see. I, you know, the the mortality rate of this particular virus, the transmissibility of this particular virus of the original of the original virus, not necessarily the Delta variant, which has gotten more transmissible uh, and slightly um, more deadly. Uh, I, I think we're actually somewhat fortunate that it's not worse than it actually than, than we have found it to be because it's not hard to imagine a, a strain of this that is that is far more virulent and far more uh, lethal and um, but but the piece of that is um, we have the strategies that can be effective to to recognize and respond to it much more quickly than we did this time and so um, the, the unfortunate thing about public health is that when it succeeds you don't notice it so whenever whenever we are really effective, at uh, a public health strategy, it's that people don't get sick and people don't die. So it's the absence of a problem, which is why public health is ridiculously underfunded globally, because it, it is only when it fails that suddenly we get attention and funding. And then as soon as you fix that problem, it is out of our mind and the funding drops again. And so mm. it, it, it's this, it's this weird uh, situation where when we do things well, we are absolutely overlooked. Michael, you have the advantage of, um, of a global perspective and you've got, doubtless through your multiple channels, access to all the relevant information to inform a global view. Are there any moments or instances that you could highlight of, of best practice on how to, uh, how to handle the, the threat of these sorts of outbreaks? Yeah, so I would I would point to to early on some governments um, in East and Southeast Asia did a really good job of using location tracking technology um, to identify where there were outbreaks and notifying people uh, as to potential exposures. Uh, now, of course, th- there is a whole subset of concerns re- related to data privacy and trust of institutions that's necessary because you we we don't want 
the uh, abuse of personal location data or other data. But I, but I would, I would point to that as a really early success. Like, like, like South South Korea, I think did right. um, yep. a, a, a very excellent job with that early yep. on. Yep. Um, I, and, and so that would be one piece of it, uh, a technology solution that that was really effective. I would say. One of the early global successes from political leadership would it would be the prime minister of new zealand um, who came out very clearly uh, and articulated why there had to be such a significant level of sacrifice um, and collective action to make sure that the nation was protected um, now there's also a downside to that that you know an island nation is much easier to lock down a small island nation in particular is much easier to lock down so to hold up other political leaders as not as successful as her i think would would be a little bit of a mistake because it's kind of apples and oranges um, it's, only four, it's only four to five million people too. Exactly. The, the, the other um, kind of early success, um, places like Tanzania and Senegal um, did a really good job with low technology solutions. So they listened to the WHO and their recommend, recommendations around um, masking, uh, distancing. Tanzania did not go into lockdown, but they took on other strategies that were that weren't dependent upon a lot of technology and used the resources that were that were available. So, like there, there are some you you do not need to be a high income, high tech community uh, to make this work. Uh, you have to have some level of collective commitment, though, um, and and listening to experts uh, to make it happen. And then the other big piece, which is which was somewhat financially uh, dependent, was you know, early on when a lot of uh, high income countries like like Canada, the EU, um, the United States committed uh, to uh, remove all the financial barriers to pharmaceutical companies developing vaccines quickly was um, incredibly important because the, the reason that this was able to happen so quickly and some people, it makes people, some people skeptical, how in the world did it happen so quickly? Well, we essentially had the kind of the framework technology, but the big thing was removing all financial disincentives. We just poured as much money as possible as uh, and imaginable to, to every organization that was willing to develop a potential vaccine, so that we had as many possibilities um, as we could as we could imagine. And we ended up getting a couple that worked, and that was uh, an incredibly important strategy that will need to be replicated in the future. I suspect. Great, Michael. Well, I think that pretty well effectively covers the, the full scope of, of the issue past, present and future. Anything else you think needs to be considered? You know, I, I would just say the, the other big question that that is really important right now is the global vaccine distribution. And so we, you know, we, we, we see, um, you know, essentially our a dozen countries that have really have high vaccination rates and high availability and globally um, much less available. And th the thing that this pandemic should put into full relief for us is that if one community uh, is experiencing uh, a significant amount of virus circulating, it can threaten the entire globe because that's how these variants emerge. And so we are only going to be safe globally when everyone is safe. And so uh, making sure that it's the places of highest transmission and the most vulnerable that get access to these vaccines as quickly as possible is the only way we're gonna prevent even more dangerous variants from emerging and therefore threatening that we have to start this all over again. We've just had a, a very particular experience of that 
here in Australia where we've had a million jabs of doses of, uh, of Pfizer come from Poland because the, the, the vax sceptics in Poland have worried people to death and, and uh, as a result they haven't used their, their quota. So we've got it here where we haven't got anything because we over-ordered AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca oh. is really only good for older people yeah. uh, and, and we've got a whole lot of younger people who need the Pfizer dose? Yeah. So that 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 just arrived yesterday. I I, I hope it's uh, distributed efficiently. <laughs> so do I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for your time and for putting up with with uh, the uncertainties and vagaries of uh, establishing a time and a place to engage that was mutually workable. Thanks very much. Thank you for the invitation uh, and uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss this. Subscriptions to the English edition of La Civiltà Cattolica range in price from $14.95 to $200. For short-term and annual subscriptions, for individuals and for groups, for further information, go to lacivitacatolica.com, subscribe, L-A-C-I-V-I-L-T-A-C-A-T-T-O-L-I-C-A.com, slash subscribe. <laughs>